0: Good afternoon. This is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor at the Altamont Enterprise, here this afternoon with Fibronia Mansour, and our readers will have seen her picture. Our photographer, Michael Koff, went to the Gilderland Public Library a couple of weeks back and covered the um, presentations of Gilderland High School students who were talking to the public about in-depth research projects they've done. And when Mike came back, and he's a pretty low-key guy, he said, you should see this girl from Bonia. You should listen to what she has to say. He was so impressed with your research. So we thought we'd call you up. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) So we'll just start with that, because that's what brought you here. Tell us, if you can, a little about what What that semester-long or year-long was it, research project was about? Well, um, it was a year-long
1: project, and it was part of a class called Exploring with Mindful Creativity and Curiosity. So within this class, um, which was started by our librarians, Mr. Bott and Mrs. Gergen over at the high school, um, each student is given the chance to choose a, top, a topic of their own interest and explore that for the whole year. So throughout that process, we have things like self-designed assessments where we choose how to um, display our learning for the community and for our peers. Um, we also journal a lot um, on on blogs that are specific to our projects. Um, personally, I've been in the class for the three years that it has existed, and I can tell you that it has probably been the most incredible part of my high school journey so far. Um,
0: and you are a senior this I year? I am a senior, yes. So this is the end of your high school journey yes. as you're looking back. And this, the nickname for this is E equals MC squared. Yes, and yes it is. We've written about it, but not ever had an in-depth look at one person's project. Mm-hmm. So how did you... Did you do the same project all three years, or did you each year come up with a different project? Well, the
1: first year I did a a project on foot pronation, and that basically means that I was looking at the angle at which people's ankle hit the ground as they were walking or running, and then exploring the effects on different parts of um, their bodies as a result of that. So normally um, um, the ankle hits the ground at about a 90-degree angle, But uh, due to different genetic variations, of course, different people's ankles hit the ground at different angles. And essentially, what I was looking at was how that affected their joint pain um, and at what period of their life they were experiencing that joint pain. So that was kind of my entry into biological research. And why did you choose this? To be honest, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, it isn't like
0: you were suffering ankle pain? Or no, just no. I, and I had never
1: actually had any um, yeah. joint injuries or anything like that. It was just kind of a simple um, and doable project that I took as my um, first step into the, the immensely large world of biological research. And how did you conduct that research? Um, so I found a group of people who... Uh, I, they weren't people from the high school because I was choosing to focus on an older population um, and I they were ages um, 20 to 30 so I went to um, my sister actually helped me out with this um, she got some of her friends from college to uh, participate in the study and um, I basically recorded a video of their of them running on a treadmill and then um, isolated uh, screenshots of of their ankle hitting the ground and then um, gather the data that way but my real interest
0: I found in neurology okay but I want to just go finish with the angle so you, you like have these videos and you got screenshots at that moment of impact and you mm-hmm. started out by saying different ethnicities have different well no no, no. different no. genetics oh different genetics yeah okay. so
1: we have genes yeah. um and basically there's a classification between genetic variation and mutations. So, you know, when we hear a lot about like um, genetic defects, those are called mutations. Um, There's like something significantly wrong with a specific organ or system of the human body. But then when we think about um, something called um, quantitative trait locus, that's basically just means that there's a Variation in the gene, but it's not a fatal variation, and it's not something that's extremely far from the regular um, genomic attributes. So basically, that just meant that instead of being 90 degrees, it could have been 75 degrees. So it wasn't a significant, a directly significant impact upon people's um, skeletal um, alignment, but it was so much of an impact that it caused. Uh, later on joint pain and um, even upon um, just exercise or, or heightened physical activity, they were experiencing some kind of joint pain. Um, but that wasn't really the biggest lesson that I learned from that project. The biggest lesson that I learned from that project was in my like response survey. So after I conducted the study of looking at the videos of how their ankles were hitting the ground. I sent them out a survey, and I asked them if they had joint pain. And most of the time, what I was finding is that a lot of people were saying, yes, I did have joint pain, but it was because of this. And they had this definitive um, claim of why they had their joint pain, which I found interesting because none of it was diagnosed by a doctor. They didn't feel that it was significant enough. Yeah, exactly. So that was really the most interesting part of the results that I gathered. It was that sometimes we take certain things for granted and we kind of just go about our daily lives and our business without thinking about um, the possible repercussions that certain parts of our regular
0: lives might um, implicate. Fascinating. So now I took you off the track. You said you found your true interest was neurobiology. Yes. And tell us a little about why.
1: Well, when I think about research, I think a lot about possibility and how to venture into something that will keep you curious. And as you know, curiosity is in the name of our class, um, Exploring with Mindful Creativity and Curiosity. So when I came to enter my second year of, of E equals MC squared, I thought about what interests me in terms of what makes me curious, what instills within me um, an unwavering desire to know more about something. And that was with the brain. Um, most of it, most of the reason came from the fact that we really don't know much of anything about the brain. But we do know some things, and those clues that we currently have are grounds for great possibility and great opportunity in the
0: discipline of neuroscience. But don't we know a lot more about the brain than we did? (laughs) I mean, recently, these scans that have allowed people to actually see parts of the brain functioning, hasn't Mm -hmm. that changed a lot of... It has, and that's the impression
1: that I was under, too, at the beginning of last year. But the more you read and the more you look at all these different studies and the questions that they raise, the more you realize that there is so little that we know and there is so much more to explore. So, um, I'll give you an example. So, this year I was studying Alzheimer's disease. And um, a lot of what I knew about Alzheimer's disease after studying it for several months was that it was caused by the buildup of these proteins that instead of getting cleaned out from the brain, they would stick together. They would aggregate into these plaques that would be um, have a negative effect upon the brain. So, I... was always under the impression that this was the only explanation for Alzheimer's disease. But then I started looking into these clinical trials about um, different drugs that were being developed, and I started to realize, well, if these drugs that are targeting the aggregation or the buildup of these proteins haven't been proven effective, then maybe there's something else. So then I started exploring other theories of Alzheimer's disease. And I can tell you that it opened my eyes to... Such a large world of different theories and different ideas about the disease. For example, um, I'm sure many people are familiar with how diabetes works. Um, our cells, when when someone has diabetes, the cells in their body do not accept glucose or sugar as energy. Right, so this. A theory about Alzheimer's is called the oxidative stress theory. Basically, was saying that well, maybe our neurons are becoming diabetic. They're not accepting glucose as energy for for their functions that they need to carry out when they send signals to different parts of the brain, and then as a result when there's a period of inactivity of the neurons, because they're not accepting that glucose, they start to decline, and they start to show us the neurodegeneration that we see characteristic of Alzheimer's disease. So that's just one example, but there are so many different examples um, of theories that are theories. They haven't been proven entirely correct, but they do have possibilities that are rooted in significant research. And that was one thing that kind of led me to Understand how we ask a lot of questions about everything. We ask questions about the heart and the brain and even things outside of our own biology. But the more that we ask questions, the less that we seek for definitive answers and the more that we realize that these questions lead us on a path to conclusions that not only make us want to learn more, but also gain the ability to explore these disciplines.
0: That sounds like a good scientific model, but <laughs> how did you narrow this as a high school student with one year to do research? What, How did you choose a path to follow, and what was that path in your research? Are you talking about this year or last year? Are both years involved with Alzheimer's? Yes. Oh, okay. So tell us about last year, then tell us about this year. Okay. Well, last year,
1: I kind of started with a super ambitious goal, and it didn't really come to fruition, but it helped me realize a couple things. So, initially, I was exploring the brain. I was, you know, reading these articles over the summer. I was thinking about what I could possibly do within the year. As you were saying, you have to narrow it down. And I came across this um, article about the possible connection between autism spectrum disorder and Alzheimer's disease. And I found that extremely fascinating because um, I had seen... In school, you know, we, we see um, students with autism and we're, we go to the same classes as them. We see them in the hallways. We interact with them. And then to, th- to kind of play with the idea that another disease that was completely different could have a possible correlation to to autism and um, this, the whole spectrum of autism, that was a really fascinating thing to me.
0: Well, they're both diseases that have increased astronomically in the last few decades. I well, don't know if that matters or not. But, well, I think um,
1: particularly with autism, that may have been attributed to the fact that it wasn't really recognized as a, as a, um, as a biological disorder of the brain.
0: So you think there was the same number of, um, people on the spectrum a half a century ago, it just wasn't recognized. That that's, I'm not sure
1: if I can go yeah. far, so far to say right. that, but I definitely think that the gradual um, decreasing and removal of such a stigma behind it may have um, kind of revealed more about the disorder and then led to a lot more research and a lot more of a heightened ability to identify um, the conditions so
0: I got you off the track again you <laughs> were okay. reading over the summer and you read this one article that fascinated you about mm-hmm. a possible connection between autism and Alzheimer's and where, where did you proceed from there? So
1: I basically decided to go with it and I decided to really explore the literature and um, spend some time with it and formulate some kind of conclusion as to whether I really thought this correlation was in fact possible so I spent most of the beginning of the year um, reading a lot. And then I thought, well, maybe I should experience, have some firsthand experiences with people who have autism. And um, basically, the, the biggest thing that I think had a really large impact on me was joining the club called Best Buddies, um, where students who are um, neurotypical will uh, be uh, joined to a peer buddy who has a developmental dis- disability. And not only was it a really great experience... Is this through
0: your school? Like yeah, through okay. Gildenland
1: High School. So my buddy's name um, is Ari, and uh, we are buddies this year also. And I can tell you that that was a really great experience, but it also um, kind of took me further away from my previous research in trying to figure out the connection
0: between the two... Um, conditions of the brain. because I I'm think- going to take you off your path again, because you said it was, has been a really good experience. Just tell us a little about that, being Ari's buddy. I mean, what, what's been good about
1: it? Well, the first thing I'm going to tell you is that Ari is an incredible person. Um, he's extremely kind, and he's always um, a great friend to have around and to, to be with. Um, so when I joined Best Buddies and I got to know Ari over, over throughout the course of the year, I really developed a friendship with him. Um, but in terms of my research, it kind of felt like it was getting a lot more difficult because, you know, other people um, in, the, in E equals MC squared were studying more immediate topics and topics that were more accessible within the school and here i was trying to piece together all this neuroscience that i honestly really had no idea about um if you think like i prior to that point all i had taken was an eighth grade um regents biology class and that didn't really provide me much background so throughout the course of the year i definitely hit a lot of obstacles as a result of that um That was mitigated, obviously, by doing interviews. Um, I contacted a lot of people um, and asked them just... I was asking them a range of really simple questions about the brain, like how do certain parts of it work, but also really large questions like do you actually think there's a possible correlation between autism and Alzheimer's
0: disease? And these people you were interviewing were research scientists? Yeah, so I'll
1: give you one example um, who actually... um, gave me an internship over the summer and led me to my worm research. But before that, um, I interviewed someone named Dr. Norman, um, who works at Albany Medical Center, and he has a C. elegans lab. Um, But we'll get to that in a little bit. And essentially, as we were talking um, throughout our interview, we kept on getting sidetracked to all of these subcomponents of the questions I was asking. And I think that interview was a really big part of understanding that Yes, there are these large questions that we want to find the answers to, but maybe the reality is that before we can find those answers, we have to maybe take a step back and ask the questions that come before it, the smaller questions that give us certain clues that we need. So, for example, before I could ask um, how Alzheimer's and autism were related, I had to ask, well, how does Autism. How do autism and Alzheimer's affect the brain independently? So, being able to narrow the big question into the necessary um, smaller questions, exactly the building blocks to that larger question, was really important. And as it was, as a result of that, that I decided in my third year of EMC this year that maybe I had to spend a little more time with the small parts of neuroscience like sea elegans, which are microscopic worms, in order to make larger conclusions about the things that I wanted to study.
0: So then you worked with Dr. Norm, is that his name? Dr. Norman, yes. Dr. Norman, what's his first name? Dr. Kenneth Norman. Kenneth Norman at Albany Medical Center? Yes, And he's conducting... Research with these worms yeah. And tell us what he's doing and how your work fit in with his. So um, Dr. Norman and
1: his team, um, they are focusing on different theories of Alzheimer's disease. So you know the theories that I mentioned earlier? Mm-hmm. Basically, they are um, taking some of those theories and they're testing the possibility of their accuracy in the worms. So they're doing a lot of things with... Um, Something called locomotion assays. So, the what they do essentially is they um, give the worms certain genetic um, characteristics that can replicate Alzheimer's disease or other neurodegenerative diseases of the brain, and then they they basically test the different hypotheses. That people have already proposed about the disease, and see if it actually holds true for the way the system works in the worms.
0: And this is doable because the worm is such a small organism, Mm -hmm. and it's all been mapped genetically and for the most part, yes. You can then see how.
1: But the other thing that's really cool about these worms is that they're transparent. So when we look at them under the microscope, we can see each individual cell, and. What, Depending on what genetic markers are put into that specific population of worms, we can see different things that are happening inside the cell.
0: <laughs> That's just very very cool. So, um, what specifically did you look at in your own project and what did you learn from it? So in my own project, I've, I actually, I'm
1: very, very grateful for Dr. Norman and and his team for allowing me and giving me the opportunity to do this. They basically taught me, you know, the baseline, um, procedures of the lab, how to, um, grow the worms, how to deal with them. And then they kind of set me off and they said, you explore what you want to explore. And for me, that took a little bit of narrowing down because, um, as in my second year of EMC, I had the big danger of starting out with something that was too large for my own abilities. So, the thing that I landed on was glial cells, and um, glial cells are basically like Mr. Clean cells of the brain. So, could you
0: just spell glial for us?
1: G L I A L. Okay. So essentially, they. Serve to clean out any extra proteins, any toxins that are in the brain. It's kind of like an Im- it's. Well, the glial cells are um, cellular components of a larger system called the lymphatic system, and that's exactly like the immune system. But it because the brain is separated from the rest of our bodies with um, something called the blood-brain barrier. We can't our immune system that works in the rest of our body cannot have any um, role or any hand in um, taking out toxins and giving the brain immunity from certain um, harmful substances. So these glial cells, these Mr. Clean cells of the brain, are specific to the nervous system. And essentially, um, so let me give you an example. So our neurons communicate by electrical impulses. And every time an electrical impulse goes through the brain, it's um, It opens up these ion channels. And essentially, that means once the um, electrical impulse passes, you have an exchange of substances. So that can be sodium with potassium. It can be calcium and magnesium. There are several things that... When the electrical impulse is not passing through, stay inside the neuron and things that stay outside the neuron. But once that impulse passes through from the beginning of the neuron to the end of the neuron, you have an exchange of those substances. Sometimes, however, those substances that are being produced are not produced correctly. For example, like I told you about the amyloid hypothesis, which states that the amyloid proteins are being produced Incorrectly, which means instead of being able to be cleared by these glial cells, they're actually produced with these sticky ends that will aggregate into a plaque and then uh, that prohibits the glial cells from being able to clear them out of the brain. And when you imagine, kind of like if you had two neurons and you put some, it's, um, let me think of an example. So if this two these two microphones in front of us, if we put them to be um, attached to each other, um, and then we sent out, we turned them on, and then there was obviously electricity going through them. But then we put something over the mouthpieces of the microphones, and we prohibited them from, res- from receiving our voices, and therefore... Um,
0: transmitting.
1: Transmitting them. Right. Then those microphones would be considered non-functional, right? Right. So in the same way, when you have two neurons that are connected by the electrical impulse that passes through them, and you have a plaque that's forming on top of that connection, it disables the connection. And as a result, if the cells, the neurons are not functioning, then they start to degenerate. And the other thing that puts our brains in the most... Conundrum of a situation <laughs> is that we our neurons do not divide uh, by mitosis, which means they can't create new neurons. So the neurons that we have in our brains is it their lifetime endowments. So when we have those plaques that are sitting on the connections between our neurons, then the degeneration that happens causes us to lose completely lose the function and the structure of those neurons that. We have one of each single one, each single neuron, so that's that's a big a big thing about Alzheimer's that um, is really difficult because we can talk about medications that can pause or stop the disease, but that doesn't mean that any damage that has already been done
0: will be reversed so when you finished your your project, are you something, as you go forward in your life, this is something you're now passionate about and you're going to continue to pursue? Or what what are your immediate plans for next year?
1: Well, I will be attending Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences in the fall. Um, and I do hope to continue my research, um, be- mostly because I'm really curious about it. And this study of C. elegans and the cells inside of such a small organism has been really eye-opening in terms of being able to objectively find value in things that we might not always find value in. I mean, if you think about a study that is done on a human brain or a larger organism than, than C. elegans, you can immediately find value in it because it seems like it's more directly related to the impact that it can have on people who... Um, are affected by the disease, whether it's um, a family member or just someone that they know. But then we see these worms and we consider them inconsequential and as though they have no real purpose in the world of biological research. But the reality that I came to find and understand is that, yes, they are insignificant, but that doesn't mean they're not important. Because we can Try to test drugs on, you know, um, a human. But we don't know what those drugs, what effects those drugs will have upon the humans that we're testing them on. We have to take it a step further, actually several steps further, and test them on something small, and then explore those smaller organisms because they can give us a clue as to how it works in humans. So I'll give you an example. Last year I was really focusing on making conclusions about the human level of of these disorders and about the brain. But then this year, I had to really think about whether all those givens that we had assumed when we're thinking about the human nervous system were actually true. And that ability to question something on a larger scale leads us to a smaller scale in order to confirm those assumptions. So it's not necessarily a matter of being able to test Medications or certain procedures on the smaller organisms, but it's really for the
0: sheer fact of do we really know what we think we know? Just extending the frontiers of knowledge as opposed to finding a specific solution to a problem. That, exactly, yeah.
1: Because you can't find the solution to the problem if you don't completely understand the problem.
0: And I know over the centuries of scientific investigations, there have been discoveries that weren't recognized until generations later that had Mm -hmm. a practical application. But I'm just wondering, with the School of Pharmacy, why you made that choice? What what do you hope to pursue there? Um, Well, there are many options in pharmacy.
1: Um, I could work in um, drug development, um, which would be like testing all those um, different medications. But to be honest... um, I had kind of planned to um, pursue medicine, and um, that didn't really end up working out in terms of my college process, but I think going into um, the pharmacy school and being exposed to those classes anyway, and being able to, because I I think there are many similarities between medicine and pharmacy, um, being able to kind of figure out what I really want to do, um, having that option available to me is still really important.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of um, experimentation for drugs that are going on at schools that are like veterinary schools and, mm-hmm. you know, other places besides Certainly. just medical schools. Um, but as you look back, because you're just so passionate about learning, I think it's wonderful. As you look back at your school career, um, I think you called it a journey, what Like What stands out for you, or maybe there are several, as milestones or particular teachers or particular other than the E equal NC Squares programs that kind of shaped you into this inquisitive and articulate person that you are? I just think that would be interesting to hear.
1: That's a hard one because I've had wonderful teachers throughout my entire career, but I can tell you about um, my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. McLean. Um, and it was in that fourth grade class when um, we were actually preparing for the um, New York State science exam, and um, we were doing a lot of this science stuff, and I, I was really confused as to what science really was, and I would, I would you know, go through all these um, exercises and do these practices for the exam, and I would, I would ask her, I would say, well, is this science? Like, is this What the scientists that are big people, that are adults, is this what they do? And the biggest thing that she pushed me towards was asking questions and being able to understand that science is not a thing. It's not something to be attained, but rather it's a process by which to improve not only your breadth of knowledge, but also your approach to everything. So I can definitely tell you that by learning to ask more questions – it not only helped me to be better at science and to gain more knowledge in that discipline, but also to be able to get to know people and to be able to show an interest and curiosity in what other people like to do and what other people um, are passionate about. Because I think everything, and this was actually something that I only realized um, recently through my time in EMC, everything that we do and every experience that we pursue should serve to make us better people because, at the end, when all is said and done, you know, my paper on C elegans isn't going to be that significant. the The facts alone in 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 solitude will not have a great significance on who I am as a person because those are just facts. Those are things that, without bringing them to life and giving them a true, meaningful purpose, that improves you as a person. Will have no meaning in the future. So I definitely, I definitely, probably started my science um, obsession in fourth grade with Miss McLean. But it's always been this gradual process of understanding a certain thing, grasping a concept, whether it be in science or. Um, Like several of my peers are studying these incredible things. Um, My friend Silma Suba is studying dreams. um, Dreams? uh, Dreams and um, their effect on waking life. Um, Alex Guji has conducted this incredible exploration of of humanity and morality and what it means to be um, a good person in this world. And he delved into all of these different... Uh, focuses such as um, religion and is it possible to have a secular morality Um, noah cohen greenberg he is studying the science of stand-up comedy and it was while being exposed to all of these different topics and all of these different people that had different passions that i realized we weren't all so different as we might have thought we were You know,
0: I can say that... Yes, studying stand-up comedy seems very different than looking for the roots of Alzheimer's, but... Exactly, which
1: which is the impression that anybody would be under at the beginning of such an endeavor, but then you start to realize that we aren't just studying all of these disciplines in isolation or simply just to learn facts or to memorize a certain repertoire of information. We're studying all of these things because that's our own way of becoming better people. And we're all on this path and on this journey to causing positive affect as a result of our studies. Um, and I think that goes, a lot of credit must be given to the coordinators of our class, um, Mr. Bot, Mrs. Gergen, and um, Benjamin Goes, who is um, a kind of a research consultant or volunteer that helps us out a lot in EMC. And they all have their own interests, um, and I'm pretty sure nobody really cares about worms anyway, <laughs> but they, because we're all different people and because we all bring that personal background and experience to the table when we conduct our research and when we are in this class, we all push each other to find meaning that is universal,
0: and do your colleagues share the same level of passion that you have for their work? Absolutely. If not, the same, definitely more oh, than I do. Oh my goodness! Well, how does this fit in with your family? Are they also passionate about the work they do? What, what, like what do your parents do? For well, my there? mom is a technology
1: teacher at the Farnsworth Middle School, and my dad is a priest um, at the Orthodox Church um, in downtown Albany. And um, my sister is actually she also goes to Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, and. She's um, been doing clinical research and and um, published. Um, actually, she's going to speak at a conference um, in a couple weeks um, on the work that she's published. Um, my brother is currently in um, in a joint uh, bachelor of science and um, medical doctor degree program. Um, so I think being a part of this family and being able to see um, you know my parents do what they love and and have a significant impact on, on their respective communities and my siblings also, um, I'm the youngest of three. my siblings you know follow their their passion and pursue the path that really interests them has really shown me that you can do something um, but you can do it with passion. And those are two very, very different things. And once you are able to attain that passion or attain something that you are passionate about, you know, the sky's the limit. Um, and I'm actually, I'm working on a presentation right now for the um, Capital Region Steam Expo. Um,
0: and Steam is science, technology, engineering, and math for our listeners who aren't from And art, art? With art? the a. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it was stamina out the art. Yes. Yes, um, okay. And as I'm thinking
1: about this presentation, and thinking about what's the biggest lesson that I've learned, I think it's that, you know, we might look at a crowd of people or when we think about the grand scheme of things, we might think that we are small or that the role that we play in whatever capacity that we live is not a significant part of the community that we are a part of or the, the world in general. But the fact is, and I'd like, I'm like, honestly, I'm still having trouble being able to fathom it. If a worm that is microscopic, that is transparent, that is practically invisible has the ability to move science forward and literally provide incredible insights as to what is going on in an entire human being who is comprised of cells and and organs and all of these complex biological connections, then how is it that we, who are those entire human beings... Can consider ourselves without a role and without a purpose in those larger contexts, and I just I just find it so important to be able to take all that I've learned, and while every single piece of it has been really significant on my life and really important to me, being able to take all of that and sum it up into one really big lesson that it can be um, proclaimed and and um, spoken to spoken about to other people because this actually came up in our um library day um we had a panel discussion and we were fielding questions from the audience and one of the questions was how has this class taught you about things like gratitude and giving back and the first thing that came to mind um for me was that well we aren't just pushed to learn things for the sake of learning we aren't simply seeking you know um academic prestige or or anything that is solely within ourselves. We are taught and we are pushed and we are challenged to go outside of our own selves and be able to carry all of those lessons to the larger community and to to um basically just extend the implications of our work and our knowledge and our research to others around us because you know keeping all the knowledge to yourself won't do any good. But when we are able to give back and be able to appreciate that this knowledge isn't just what its material, material or um, substantive pieces, um, it's not just comprised by the substantive pieces, then we are able to realize that there are so many implications and so many lessons to be learned from those journeys that should be shared with the community around us.
0: And that is a perfect end note that will carry us forward. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. It's my pleasure.